You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the newsroom to you live. Hello, and welcome to Next on Washington Post Live, where we take a closer look at rising changemakers, young people who have caught our eye from academia to the hill and everywhere in between. I'm Helena Andrews-Dyer, pop culture reporter here at The Post. My guest today was appointed the National Student Poet by the Library of Congress in 2017, and now is the founder of the Indian Girls Book Club. Kinsel Drake joins me to talk about amplifying the voices of Native American authors. Kinsel, welcome to Washington Post Live. Thank you for having me. Let's dive in, because we have so much to get to. Um, I want to start off with a statistic. Less than 1% of publishing professionals are Native American. You officially launched the Indian Girls Book Club a month ago. Was it in response to that number? What inspired you to create this literary community? I think, well, growing up as a Native person and as an avid reader, those statistics are very much a reality for you. Um, I grew up not knowing the wealth of Native authors that existed until I was much older. And obviously when I was a teenager trying to read YA and like all these great books, there were no Native protagonists at the time. Now there's a wonderful amount of YA and, and fiction and all my favorite genres that um, are more represented. But I think it was, you know, being a reader myself and then I'm also a writer. And so navigating the publishing world, it was very disheartening to see behind the scenes what was getting money and what was getting um, a majority of ad space and what was getting marketing. And it wasn't anybody who looked like me or was telling stories that, you know, I, I or my family could relate to. Um, so that was definitely part of the motivation behind Indian Girls Book Club. But um, it was mostly, I think, a celebration of us just, you know, standing on our own and finding strength in community and sharing books that we loved. Because I think for us, for, for Native readers, it's not that, you know, many of us think that there's a shortage of amazing Native writers and Native books. It's just a matter of having spaces to talk about it and share our thoughts and, and share suggestions for our next read. I love that. So it's not the idea that the stories are not there. It is finding the stories, finding the community, um, and connecting those two. That's incredible. So talk to us about the origins of the club's name, Indian. Now, I have to be honest, it took me a minute to, you know, for it to shake <laughs> out in my head, uh, but the name has an even deeper meaning, correct? Talk to us about that. Yeah. So NDN, it's spelled NDN for those who don't uh, know how it's spelled. It's NDN are the letters. And it's slang. Usually it, it's used in terms of like urban Indians, urban Indians. And um, Indian is a term that Native peoples don't normally like non-Natives using just because it's a misnomer. People tend to use it in community, which is why NDN is kind of like a play on that word. It's, it's like a slang term that's recognizable and contemporary. Um, and it also stands for not dead Native in many people's understandings of it. So there's, there's kind of like a dual meaning. And as a poet, I love that. I love that there's, you know, a couple meanings there. And explain non-dead native, what that means. Right. So we have the American mythology perpetuated by literature and media that natives don't exist. Uh, the majority of Americans actually don't believe that natives are alive anymore. And that's, you know, statistically proven uh, by polls that are taken. And so NDN is kind of this, this nomer for us that says, you know, we're still here. We're not dead natives. We're still here and we're contemporary. We're cool. 
we're present and we're making it happen. So that's definitely, I think, what I was thinking of when I was creating the club is this sense of we're we're here, we're present, we're contemporary. We're like, we're the cool kids and we're gonna talk about books and have fun doing it. Right, that natives are not in the past. They're very much in the present. Um, and speaking of the present, just last month you were here in DC at the Apple Carnegie Library for its Protect Our Planet series. Tell me about that event and the types of community building programs your book club hosts. Yeah, that was a, a beautiful event. We had folks from all over DC and even coming in from out of town, um, young little ones and, and older folks, elders, who we came in and we wrote poetry together and we made zine pages actually using iPads. And we were able to share those at the end of the session. And it was really beautiful. I've been teaching workshops for seven years um just you know generative workshops a lot of the time for beginners and it was very similar I, I got to talk about you know the book club and the work that we do and then have a workshop and actually get to interact with people and see their writing and, and and let them share that with others and i think that's one of the really important things about book club is we're not just a reading community we're also a writing community and mainly our focus is on uplifting young writers but mainly just emerging voices getting them resources that you know, are hard to find on your own. And, you know, as a writer myself, I am very familiar with how difficult it is to find those opportunities for specifically Indigenous writers. Um, but that event was beautiful and people were able to show their artistic skills along with their writing skills. And I'd like see, like hearing the youngest person in the room share a poem was just, it was so wonderful. It was just the cutest. Zine culture is alive and well. As a child of the 80s and 90s, I'm very excited about that. Um, <laughs> one of Indians' main goals is to get books, physical books, into the hands of Native youth. How do you get that done, one? And what are the obstacles to making that happen? Yeah, so the whole thing kind of started because we started getting a lot more traction than I thought. and and what happened was publishing houses heard what we were doing and they started sending us like dozens and dozens of copies of books by the native authors that they were publishing and they did it for free so we could um literally just i was sending out packages the entire month of january and then some of february i was i was making care packages with like merch we had left over i had designed some merch and then i was putting books in there and just sending them out using a grant from First People's Fund. I was just directly sending these packages out and getting them into the hands of people who wanted them. And um, that started to pick up steam. And we were like, oh my gosh, like people have a real, there's a real need for a program that centers native literature. And, and just getting books into the hands of readers is really important, um, given how underfunded, you know, some tribal libraries are, given how hard it is to get books to certain communities and, you know, actually into the hands of readers. Uh, and that was what was really important to me. It was the fact that there's so many wonderful books out there. It's just a matter of getting them into the hands of readers who want to read them. And so using that grant as a jumping off point, then you know we were able to gain traction. People started donating books. We had libraries reaching out to us. Now we have a partnership with Quiet Quail Books, which is an indigenous bookseller in California. Um, and we're working on trying to make getting these books more accessible for everyone on every level, getting them to libraries, sending them out for free in packages, um, having discount codes with Quiet Quail, having publishing houses send us things for free, you know, getting authors to donate copies of their own books. It's been really exciting. 
And those packages I hear are very pretty and, you know, very <laughs> exciting to get. What, like, what, what do you think that's like? What have you heard from members of the book club when they get one of those packages and, op and opens them up? Oh, I, I get so emotional seeing the response. Um, my, I, I don't, I can't even pick a favorite person who gets them because everything from like, the, there are these little girls who will have, their mom will film them opening it and they'll be like, <gasps> like, oh my gosh, Hello Kitty bookmark. And then like, you know, I've always wanted this book and it's this beautiful, you know, illustrated children's book or something. Um, and then there's like older women who will receive packages and they'll send me a message like, you know, I'm not a little native girl anymore, but this is, this is really special. And it, it just is like, yeah, we're all those little kids, those little excited kids opening these and getting a book and, and just having a sort of shared community through this, this love. And I think that's part of it too, is like, so what is stereotypically native and like what looks stereotypically native? We don't send out like designs with like merge with like, you know, dream catchers or whatever, like that's whatever. So sacred, so stoic. Um, that's fine. But like, you know, in, in its own context, but we, we embrace like the little kid side of things. Like I'll send out little cute erasers and pens and notebooks and collaborations with native artists, just things to get people excited and to get them excited to open that up and start writing or open up a book and start reading. And tell us about the authors you're excited about. Who is the club shining a light on right now? Yeah, so we've worked with so far Darcy Little Badger. Um, Tanea Winder was at our launch, and she's also our next author of the month. Um, Carol Lindstrom, who wrote We Are Water Protectors, which is the first um, Native children's book. It's a first children's book to win a Caldecott that was written by a Native person. And it was also illustrated by a wonderful uh, illustrator, Michaela Goad. And um, we've also worked with uh, Danielle Geller, who was the author of Dog Flowers. It's one of my favorite books. And we're also going to be working with Matika Wilbur. We have a couple other things in store. Um, and obviously, I, I'm in Indigenous Nations Poets, which is actually usually based out of DC. And they have these, I mean, Heidi Erdrich, all these wonderful writers who I want to loop in and, and have them do book talks. Um, it's fun. It's like I have all my poetry friends who I'm like, do you want to do a book talk? And they're like, yeah. So it's it's been really collaborative and really, really fun to plan. The energy around this, the positive energy around this and just hearing you talk about it is so infectious. The other side of this, which I find really interesting, is that you've connected harmful representations in literature and media to negative effects on your mental health. What kinds of stories about Native Americans do you want to see more of? Oh my God, I want to see queer love. I want to see, you know, I want to see mixed race natives. I want to see Afro-Indigenous stories. I want to see some like more stories that really represent who Natives are and how diverse they are. Um, I've been talking about this forever and I'm, I'm at this point I'm probably going to just write it myself, but I've always just wanted like a meet cute romance, like a healthy romance between two native characters. Um, there's so many things, comics, graphic novels, more children's books. There's so many things that I think can come from this uh, community, but also, you know, by supporting each other and like, you know, getting each other's work out there, getting us to feel more confident, getting writers to share their work, this can happen. And, and I'm really hopeful for the future of 
literature, um, not just native literature, because there is no one native literature, but just where it can go and what kind of futures it can build for all of us. I love what you said at the beginning of that answer. Um, you want to see it written, so you need to write it. So we'll, we'll be waiting on that. We're waiting on that, Gisele. Uh, we have an audience question that I want to get to from Jeff Rivero from California, who asked, what advice would you give Native American students about keeping the culture alive? Yeah, that's a great question. I think for me, I always come thinking about stories. Um, but whatever talent, whatever way of telling stories, whatever way of celebrating who you are and where you come from, um, that's survivance. And Gerald Visioner, who's also an author and scholar, taught us that stories are a form of survivance. Um, when we tell our stories and when we equip the next generation, we're passing on knowledge and exercising a really powerful pathway of keeping our culture alive. And I think culture is a really broad term. Um, and just like how diverse that is for all of us, stories and literature should be just as diverse to reflect and kind of extend that narrative of what culture is and what it's becoming. Um, I think, you know, I'm really, really excited and hopeful seeing young people rise to the forefront of movements and, you know, writing. And I, I just see more and more young people every day becoming national student poets, becoming writers, becoming artists of their own. Um, even through book club, you know, folks saying, this is really inspiring me to write something. I think whatever way that you find storytelling can be the most powerful for you, whatever avenue you see fit, whether that's poetry, whether that's fiction, whether that's, you know, music, whatever, um, follow that path and know that there is a wealth of which I, Joy Harjo calls them poetry ancestors, but know that there's a wealth of those who came before you, who want you to be on this path. And they, you know, pave the way to make things just a little easier for you. I love that. The path is laid out. All you have to do is, you know, put your first step on it, right? Take that first step. Speaking of poetry, um, it was in high school when you began to more deeply explore or began to explore your native heritage. And you said that poetry specifically helped you do that. Talk about that. How? Yeah, I, I, I think specifically, well, I always was, my family's very traditional. I always was acutely aware of my positionality as a Native person and as a Native woman. I think it's just that really weird time when you're coming of age and becoming very self-aware that you start to understand the world more deeply and your relationship to it. And for me, that was understanding like, oh, like, this is happening because of structural racism or like this is happening because of intersectionalism, like my intersectional identity. And so that was kind of what I was realizing when I was in high school and that I was starting to have the tools to deconstruct and understand. And so poetry for me was just another tool for me to understand my identity in the greater world. It was a way for me to draw connections between myself and other poets that had come before me, other, you know, movements in writing and, and kind of orient myself because uh, before that I really wasn't reading a lot of native literature and and you know that's just it's kind of interesting how that's almost a luxury for native students themselves because it's not normally taught in schools and it's also not really originally it wasn't really even catered to us like the first wave of the native renaissance was marketed to white audiences and non-native audiences and that's a really strange thing to know that native literature initially was not even really for you in the eyes of publishers. So I think I was coming to terms with that and 
making the narrative back about myself and my family. You know, I have all these amazing stories. My family did so much for me to be here and, you know, how to even begin to grapple with that, how to begin to even celebrate the life that they'd given me and the wonderful, you know, people I'd come from, how brave they were. I had the privilege of being able to sit down and now record and now understand these stories and ask questions to my family. And so that was really what I was delving into in high school. Um, you know, these stories, how I could powerfully, you know, capture them for my family. Um, and then I guess that's when I discovered that that had some resonance with other people. And in June, you'll be performing poetry, your poetry at the iconic Carnegie Hall in New York. What can guests expect to hear? Ooh, well, they'll be hearing a lot of really great stuff because that's the Scholastic Gala. But for me, they're they're going to be hearing some new pieces and uh, there's some about identity. I'm like, I don't know how much I can say, <laughs> but I will say my outfit is fire. Oh, <laughs> okay. Tell us about that. Oh, so the outfit is by um, Orlando Dugay, who's a, a Navajo designer, and he's making this like beautiful dress. Dress has actually always been a really important part of my performances, um, mostly because I'm usually the only person in the room in regalia when I'm doing a reading. And so for me, like being on stage in Carnegie Hall, stepping into my power, wearing a Navajo designer and speaking my poetry is just like a dream come true. I think it's just... I'm so excited to do it. I'm so excited and and I'm really honored that I was asked to to read a couple poems for the event. You recently said about Indian, and I love this quote, I really want this book club to be a place where we can figure out what success looks like. What does success look like to you? How do you define it? I think with, you know, publishing it's, it's about how many books, this is not my belief usually, it's, this, this is like the publishing world and just having seen the inside of it, it's how many books you have published, it's how much, you know, how many readers you have, uh, New York, the, the bestsellers list, things like that. But for our communities, success is not typically measured that way. Um, and I think that's why a lot of the time, you know, there's like an incompatibility with understanding natives and understanding an audience of native readers. Um, because for us, I think it's having healthy stories, supporting each other, being able to uplift each other. Success is having these kinships of, you know, community, whether that's like reading circles, um, ways to connect with each other over art. That's success to me. Um, seeing students in higher education entering spaces and having support from mentors who want to help them with their writing. Um, you know, natives have the lowest rates of graduation in out of any group. And, you know, I, I I'm, all of us were very acutely aware of that as we navigated higher education. And that was part of why Indian Girls Book Club came to exist was it was actually my, my senior thesis for ethnic studies, how to keep native students in higher education and not be pushed out. And of that, of course, is the success of seeing yourself properly represented. Um, being supported by your community, having that reciprocity and, um, you know, having a way to healthily ex express yourself and pass on knowledge to future generations. That is success, I think. And that is how our communities flourish and how they will continue to flourish. 
So this will be our last question, looking ahead towards that future. One, congratulations are in order because you received your degree from Yale in June. It's it's graduation season. Congratulations. And then you're also currently working on your debut manuscript of poetry. Tell us what that work will focus on. Oh, I'm like, how did you guys get all this information? (laughs) Um, My debut manuscript, I love music. And um, immediately that was what I thought of writing about when I was writing it. Um, One of my favorite musicians, one of them is Buffy St. Marie and one day when I was really mad because of some feedback I had gotten from a, a professor who had a reputation for pointing to things in, in um, students of color's poetry and saying, I don't understand this. And it had something to do with identity. I was really upset one day and I wrote this rantina. That's what Deborah Miranda calls it, like an angry poem, a rantina. And it was a tribute to Buffy St. Marie. And it, it basically was saying, you know, I don't want to write what you want me to write about. I want to write about Buffy St. Marie. And... I'm gonna write about it because it's important to me and here's why. And that was the the starting jumping off point for this manuscript. And so it I, I love it. It delves into all kinds of questions about music. What is native music? Can you even call native music native music? Anthropologically, what has it been in the past? How has an instrument been an instrument of destruction or containment like a wax cylinder? Um, you know, how to celebrate icons who were poets in and of themselves. Buffy St. Marie uh, is one of them. And then, you know, what native music even means, it can be George Strait. You know, it can be like country on KTNN, which is the radio station on the Navajo Nation that we grew up listening to. Um, It can be Motown you hear in the car or like it's songs your grandpa used to sing. So I'm excited. It's very personal to me and uh, I love I just love music and I think lyricism has a special place, of course, in poetry and in music. So it's been really fun to explore the intersections of that. That sounds amazing. And you just taught us all a new word that I didn't know before, rantina. Um, (laughs) I'm going to be going on some rantinas myself, I'm sure. Uh, And you are going to be inspiring so many. Kinsel, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me, and congrats to all the Native grads. I'm very, very proud of you. And next, we're going to turn the page to mental health. Joining me now are the posts Tatum Hunter and Finnet Nirapol. Finnet and Tatum, welcome to you both. Thanks for Thanks having, for having me. me. Uh, Finnet, we're going to start with you. Surgeon General Vivek uh, Murthy recently issued an advisory that suggests Americans spend more time with each other offline and in person. Talk to us about the advisory. Right, so the advisory said that loneliness and isolation is a profound public threat to Americans and that the danger from uh, loneliness for premature death is actually on par with smoking every day. So the point of this advisory was to serve as a rallying cry for Americans that this is a wake up call for us to spend more time with each other as society is getting more digital and as it's getting more divided. And the Surgeon General doesn't necessarily have a lot of power to actually like change laws or to implement regulations, but it's a bully pulpit to raise awareness on some of the biggest uh, public health issues of our time from the dangers of smoking in the 60s to the importance of wearing condoms to prevent the spread of HIV in the 80s. So the loneliness epidemic. Tatum, you've reported on technology's role in this. Um, 
this is going to be a, this is a lot to give us a primer on, right? The intersection of tech and mental health. Uh, but tell us how those two connect. So there have been a lot of studies um, done on the connection between social media use and mental health, especially in adolescents, but still not enough. Um, the American Psychological Association issued some guidance last week about adolescents and social media use, which hopefully we can come back to. But they said in the guidance, um, we don't know for sure that social media use and Internet technology use is causes um, adverse mental health effects in in adolescents or in anybody but we can see how problematic social media use um, which means you know engaging with these dark or heavy topics or using it for a lot of hours every day is a risk factor for people who are coming in with other risk factors that includes depression anxiety other mental health issues and importantly loneliness so social media can sort of magnify these issues that might already be there is what you're saying. If you talked about this um, briefly, but equating loneliness or not necessarily equating it, but connecting loneliness and premature death. Is this new information? Is this something we weren't familiar with before? And what do we do with that information now? I so love that question. Oh. <laughs> If, if, I love that you're both joining in, but Finnett, this is for you, and uh, we're going to come back to you, Tatum. Yes, yeah, so this builds on a long body of, of uh, research. So this is not like a brand new topic. And in fact, even for Beck Murthy, this is something he's been talking about for years, and he published a book about this in 2020. So there have been studies for years now that show that there's a risk that comes from loneliness and isolation. So uh, in, to some degree, it can be obvious if you live alone and if you have a heart attack and no one's around to call 911, you're more likely to die as a result of that. But it also plays out in more subtle ways too, because isolation can cause chronic stress. And when you have chronic stress, that can cause inflammation in the body, which can exacerbate and it cause all sorts of public health problems from stress, from a stress to dementia. So there's a physiological component here in addition to the mental health component. A mind and body connection that we, it's clearly there, but I think we don't always see needs to be emphasized, right? Um, so Tatum, you wanted to talk about this. So we're gonna let you talk about this. A new term was introduced. I had I, I was not familiar with it. Digital fentanyl. That's what people are calling TikTok. Um, what are we learning about the impact on young people specifically? Social media's impact on young people's mental health. Yeah. So first, first to address the term digital fentanyl, um, I think that a lot of the you know I think we've seen that the fear mongering around TikTok, um, you know, there are some really legitimate open questions like what is this company's relationship with the Chinese government? But there is also a lot of misrepresentation we've heard from um, from even members of Congress about, you know, um, the content that the app allows and the effect on young people. I think that fentanyl is a really inappropriate analogy, um, you know, given fentanyl's real world impact on health. But I do think that parents and teenagers have some really legitimate concerns about the amount of time the kids spend on the app or the amount of their social lives that play out there. Um, and the advice that we've heard from, you know, really 
knowledgeable sources like uh, Attorney General Murthy and the APA say that um, once your social media use starts to take away from your in real life hobbies, relationships and things that bring you joy, then there is an impact on mental health and an impact on loneliness. So it's tough to give an easy answer to because it's really nuanced. Social media does not cause you know, mental health issues based on the research that we have now, but it can exacerbate them depending on the person, depending on how they use it, what behaviors they're engaging in, and what type of content they're interacting with. Infinite, to sort of piggyback on that, can social media help minimize loneliness? We're talking about the negative effects, but are there positive effects? Right. To follow up on Tatum's point, the Surgeon General Advisory was also casting social media as something of a double-edged sword here because uh, social media can also help people who feel like outcasts in their community um, connect connect to people who are like them all over the world. Uh, there's one person who I interviewed who feels really lonely because she lost both of her adult sons in 2020. She lost her parents in a span of 18 uh, months too, and she doesn't really have many friends. Or, uh, or co-workers who she hangs out with outside of work. So for her, one of her most meaningful ways of, of connection was to post photos of her crochet work on Instagram and on Facebook. And then she did feel some affirmation uh, when people were liking and commenting on those posts. So there can be a value in people, in people feeling like they are connected and uh, are developing meaningful meaningful connections. But to Tatum's point, uh, surgeon, the Surgeon General was saying was identifying the exact same issue. It's not so much social media use in and of itself, but when it's supplanting the other ways of connecting uh, to people that really uh, provide that rewarding experience and contributes to better physical and mental health. And one thing I want you to talk about, Tatum, because when we say technology, immediately we jump to social media as if there are no other forms of technology out there. Talk to us about the benefits of other forms of technology to your overall mental health. Yeah, I mean, I think that we have seen a lot of like gadgets, you know, hardware over the last few years that um, purport to help people with their mental health. There are um, really no rules around you know, what companies are allowed to say and what type of validation they have to perform before they can say it. Um, but there are, you know, there are, um, you know, proven and, and um, you know, scientifically supported gadgets out there like meditation devices or apps um, that can really have um, demonstra demonstrable benefits for things like anxiety. And this will be a last question for both of you. Finnett, we'll, I'll start with you. Have you come across any like specific tactics or coping mechanisms for dealing with loneliness or negative thoughts due to social media? I don't know about with social media um, particularly, but one of those tangible tips that I re that really stuck with me from my interview with of Vivek Murthy is he said that um, when people call him now, he will pick up the phone just to say, can I call you back later? Because I think a lot of times like we get a call, and we just send it right to voicemail. And that's something that really mm -hmm. stayed with me because like there is that value of just even having that like brief like moment of hearing of hearing someone's uh, voice. I like that, that 
even a two second human connection is better than zero, right? Um, and Tatum, to you, what are there any coping mechanisms or tactics that you have found in your research or reporting that can help combat this epidemic as we know it is now? Yeah, um, I'd say that one one thought is for parents, and here I'm echoing the APA's guidance because I thought it was really well done. They were encouraging parents to um, keep you know keep tabs on how social media makes their kids feel. Um, you know, is your kid mature enough to be encountering this type of content? Um, is you know is your kid um, in a good emotional space to spend the amount of time they do on 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 social? And um, are you are you talking about them? with them about what they're seeing. Um, I thought that was a great reminder for parents that um, it should not be carte blanche, you know, once your kid has the smartphone, that there's some really intense, heavy stuff that they're gonna encounter on there and they need your help to process it. And then the second thing, um, while I've heard from researchers that it's really important not to put the burden on individuals uh, to combat loneliness um, because it can feed into stigma that there's something wrong with you and that's why you're lonely. I've also found that as I've talked to characters for these stories who have turned to online spaces to make real world friendships, like Reddit threads for their community, uh, the app Meetup, the app Bumble BFF, that taking that step to put yourself out there and to form a new real world connection can be really vulnerable and scary, but that it's often worth it. Um, and it's so, it's so obvious or maybe like deceptively simple, but I was really moved by a lot of those stories. We are gonna have to end it there, but that is a great point to end it on, using social media to take the step outside, right? To go beyond um, your phone or laptop and also, um, not blaming individuals for being lonely, right? That That's mind-blowing to me, but it makes so much sense. Um, Finnett and Tatum, thank you all so much for joining me on Washington Post Live. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening. For more information on our upcoming programs, go to WashingtonPostLive.com.